You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan and I'm here with my two co-hosts. Rob, how's it going? Hey, how are you? Phenomenal. And Anthony, what's up? I'm doing well, thank you, my friend. Sorry, if I was reading the screen correctly, I would have called you A-dubs. Yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> that's, that's the new name from now on. With a Z right. on the end. <laughs> right. Um, all right, so we are going to be talking tonight about the Britpop scene in England in the 90s, and we have a genuine Brit who even puts a Z at the end of his name. It's not a Z, a, it's a Z. Exactly. Uh, but before that, this week, we have some listener feedback. Um, this is Was it positive, or did someone tell us we suck? Oh, no, 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 no. It was like joining in the conversation kind of feedback. Oh, that's good. right. It was like people are actually uh, listening. This is from Elaine Sweatman, and this is in response to our show about how old is too old. Um, she mentions a couple of things, one of which is um, she started thinking about some of the more pop groups and how they'll handle touring as they get older. I say this only because I will be seeing new kids on the block in July, and they are all in their 50s. I know they have to be exhausted after each show because it's usually quite a production with a lot of action and dancing. Yes, being in your 50s is not old, and I know they're, they train for their tours, but I wonder at what point they will decide they are too old for all of that. And that's a really good point. You know, and another thing about that is when you're talking about that aspect of it, the, the age aspect, when you have bands that has the word kids and boys in the name... <laughs> I mean, that's a brand that you outgrow at some point, even if you're not too old to dance on stage. How long can you keep going? I mean, when do you become the old geezers on the block? <laughs> the new octogenarians on the block. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's definitely an interesting question. And certainly those particularly those boy bands and those girl bands who are so heavily into the dance as well as the actual singing. Yeah. At some point they're going to have to, you know, tone down their stage shows and maybe be a little less energetic and maybe even take the Westlife approach. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Westlife of sitting on stools and singing. I guess that's also right. Phil Collins approach now too. So, <laughs> Wow, another dig at Phil. <laughs> I, I, so I, I've been harsh on Phil. I like a lot of his stuff, including some of his solo stuff. But mm -hmm. just the footage of him on that Genesis right. tour was just sad. Well, so. you know, an, a, another thing about this is, you know, well, not bands, groups like the Four Tops, like um, the Ink Spots. Surviving members go out and do those sort of like. Um, Package you know, those, yeah, those kind of things. And how can the new kids do that when they're in their 60s? I mean, does that work when they're in their 70s? You know, I, th I think the answer is when does the money stop coming? 
Well, of yeah. course, it, that is that's exactly. the biggest. That is the biggest thing because for a while, no one was interested in the new kids, and yeah. then the '90s revival happened, and then yeah. everybody's interested in the new kids. Yeah. So, yeah, as best as I understand. So yeah, so uh, thanks, Elaine, for listening and uh, for posing that question. We really appreciate it. And anybody else, if you want to give us some feedback, post it wherever you find our episode or email us at uh, music at modern musicology, the number one at gmail.com. And the last time I was on a music podcast before we started this one, we did listener feedback. We made it all up and it was all like absurd hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> um I used to be in a band called Hyperdrive and we did a cover of a Mazzy Star song and uh, somebody, we put it up on YouTube, you know, when we played it at whatever show we played it at and somebody commented, thanks, that just ruined my entire month. <laughs> I was like, that wow. is the best comment ever. Uh, let's talk about uh, what we have been listening to and or reading this past week. What's been in your ears and your eyeballs this week? Rob, tell us. <sighs> well, in preparation for this, um, I actually have been taking sort of a deep dive in stuff. Um, so I got this book a couple years ago. I read it when it came out. I haven't really read it since 1998, but uh, it's still interesting. It's called Britpop, Cool Britannia, and the Spectacular Demise of English Rock by John Harris. And um, it's more of a book about the lifestyles of the people that made Brit, Brit, Brit pop and sort of the cultural effects of it, but it's still very good nonetheless. Uh, also, the Tim Burgess book, uh, his biography, uh, Telling Stories. He's the lead singer of the Charlatans, and it's a much more interesting read than you might expect it to be. And also, uh, this book just came out, and I'm halfway through it, uh, Let's Do It by Bob Stanley of Saint Etienne. It's a prequel to his Yeah, Yeah, Yeah book he wrote a couple of years ago, and it covers the early years of pop music. So if you wanted to know about pop music in Victorian England or pop music in 1905, this is the book for you, and it's amazing. It is absolutely one of the seven or eight best books I've read on music in about five years. It's incredible. Wow. That sounds yeah. really interesting. All three yeah. of them do. Yeah, and then um, I've been listening to uh, a couple different things. Um, I've been listening to this band called The Catherine Wheel a lot, their first record, uh, Ferment, uh, someone and I were talking about this, and I'm like, I'm going to dig that out. And that record is still great. Uh, also, a new album by TV Priest um, called My Other People, kind of like a – sounds like Idols and Wire in the Fall, kind of in that sort of domain. And um, it's really, really good. Uh, also, uh, My Rainy Stars, 89 Memories. So if you like your shoegaze, you can get that on. That's on Shelf Life. And the last thing, uh, I got this kind of as a throwaway. Uh, it came in the mail. I was not expecting to like it, but it's called that artist called Stella, and the S in Stella is a sigma, so it's a pain in the ass to look up. But she is from she's from Athens, and it is a um, I guess you could kind of call it, she's a Greek singer, but kind of a cross between in the vein of like early Kate Bush and Regina Spector, kind of in there. She's very much a storyteller, um, not really worried about writing pop songs. But all the songs are really interesting, and her voice is, is really, really interesting as well. Cool. Yeah. A-dubs. <laughs> this is, this is going to stick, isn't it? Um, you know it. A number of things. I took a hate listen through the new Red Hot Chili Peppers album. Oh, you're braver than it. me. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, I had to remind myself of why I think this enormously successful band absolutely stinks. And... <laughs> I was reminded of that. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> I returned to Sparks very heavily in rotation this week, so that's all you need to know. Sparks again. And then also a Scottish band called Vukovi, who are best described as noise pop. They're very fun. Um, a lot of kind of crunching riffs with this really awesome female singer and really, really enjoying their their first album, um, which particularly a song called Animal, which is just really, really fun and entertaining. And I just fell in love with it. So really, those are the only three shout outs I want to give. I, I guess you could call Red Hot Chili Peppers a shout out. It's more of a, <laughs> a shout out for being terrible. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, I'm going to keep it sweet, short and sweet. So, Alan, uh, what have you been listening to this week? Um, I actually haven't been reading a lot lately. So this past week I picked up the last book that I was working on. It's called nothing but a good time. And it's about the, the whole like hair metal eighties scene. And I'd started it a few months ago and then I don't know, dropped off and in favor of other things. And then, so I thought, okay, I really need to read. So I picked that back up and you know, it's just not enjoying it as much as I expected that I would. But we're still, I'm still early in the book. So we're still talking about like band origin stories and the Sunset Strip and, and you know, and all that's really interesting. But I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I might, I might take another break from it and go off into another book. I don't know yet. See, I wonder if the book for you is, I mean, it probably is. But for me, it was interesting. It wasn't like stupendous. But since I know very little about any of that, I at least found it interesting. And the whole stuff with the Sunset Strip, I think, was more interesting than some of the bands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I almost think it tried to do too much. I think that was my mm. big complaint with it. Yeah. It was interesting, at least, to read sort of like how Striper got its start and how it changed from – I know how it changed. Because you kind of know all of the – all of the wasp stuff and the Motley Crue stuff, you know, you've heard that a million times, but you know how the striper boys kind of made their switch over from a bar band to a Christian band. It was actually kind of interesting. So there is at least that. Um, I'm sorry. I, I laughed because striper never going to not be funny to me. <laughs> I didn't say they weren't funny. I'm just saying it was an interesting <laughs> read. <laughs> um, no disrespect to striper. And then for my listening, uh, the big thing this past week, um, last night was the first show on Brandy Carlisle's new tour, and they did a live stream. And uh, it was a pay, pay to view kind of thing. So uh, my partner and I bought a little ticket and we, um, so here's the thing. It was uh, starting at nine o'clock. And that's basically all we really knew, that it was starting at 9 o'clock. What we didn't know is that this was in Washington State, so it was actually 6 o'clock their time. So we were getting the, the two opening bands as well as the headliner. So it was Lucius, followed by Sarah McLaughlin, mm. and then into Brandy's band. And it was kind of a downer of a night. I mean, there wasn't a lot of up-tempo songs. You know, Sarah McLaughlin has some up-tempo songs, but, you know, she just sort of defaults to the morose. So it was like, and I love Sarah, but um, it was just like, you know what? It's summer. You're outside at a gorgeous venue. You should really play something that people might want to dance to. You know, that's just me. But even Brandy's, um, even Brandy's set was a little more down-tempo than I would have expected. 
uh, but super, super good. I mean, she was she and her band are just phenomenal. So it was a great show. It didn't finish until three in the fucking morning. Um, but we stuck it out, man. We saw the whole thing. Anyway, so that's that's that. Moving on into a different topic, we had yet another uh, iconic figure kind of pass away this week, and that is Julie Cruz, most known for her work with David Lynch on Twin Peaks. Um, also a touring member for a couple of years with the B-52s and some of her own solo work. Um, Rob, what do you have to say about Ms. Cruz? Um, I can just say that that is one of those once-in-a-lifetime voices that you hear that you just are completely mesmerized by. Her ability to sing along with the arrangements that Bandalamente did is amazing because that's not easy. Um, but she took these songs and made them all her own. And the biggest, I think the best thing you can say is that her songs that she did for that Floating Into the Night album, most of which were on Twin Peaks, have outlasted the show, meaning that you can listen to them separate from Twin Peaks yeah. and still appreciate it. They're still strongly associated with the show, yeah. but they are also not, if that makes any sense. And just an amazing voice, a second solo record that is greatly underappreciated mm. and um, just an amazing voice. And um, it just sucks. So, yeah. Um, the stuff that she's most known for, which is the stuff associated with Twin Peaks, her voice is very ethereal, very like ghostly almost. It very much floats atop the music. And so you don't, when you see uh, footage of her with the B-52s, you would never think that it's the same person because she <coughs> is kind of a fun, really uh, joyful belter. I mean, she can belt out a song. And you wouldn't necessarily think that just from the Twin Peaks stuff. But it's cool to go back and hear like Rome and stuff with her doing some of the lead vocal parts uh, after Cindy had taken her leave of absence from the band to kind of get her head wrapped around her brother's passing and to start a family. Um, Julie stepped in and did a couple of tours with them. And um, yeah, it's, 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 she's a very, very versatile artist. You can listen to the records all the time. And, you know, the thing is, too, live, she was able to go back and forth between, like Alan mentioned, both of those styles of music. You know, when she sang those songs from Floating Into the Night Live, even though she didn't have an orchestra behind it, it still sounded incredibly ethereal and incredibly great. Yeah. But then when you saw her at the B-52, she kind of had to do a double check. And, <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, I think you nailed that. One last thing that I want to bring up really, really quickly is that we had, since we're talking about the Britpop scene uh, in this episode, we had, you know, we kind of like worked out our schedule weeks in advance and we had this on the, the schedule for this week without really clocking that this week has a particular interesting historical uh, aspect to it in that this was the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' very first recording, their studio recording. And that was on June 6, 1962. So they went into the studio. Basically, this was their audition to get signed onto a label. And uh, they're in the studio with Pete Best. And it's basically this studio session that leads to him finally getting fired and them hiring Ringo, which is who they wanted to start with. And Ringo was 
you know, booked other places and couldn't do it. So they finally, you know, if you listen to the recording of particularly Love Me Do with Pete playing, the, I mean, I hate to talk bad about the guy, but the tempo is just all over the place. And he switches from like a swing beat to a straight beat, and, and which, you know, that can work. But as we hear from the eventual recorded version, that's not what the intention of the song was. So it, it kind can of a mess. work. It just didn't in this right. instance. <laughs> right. Because every time he would go into like the bridge, he would come out of it at a slower tempo than where he was. And it's, it's, it's crazy. So yeah. they were like enough with this guy. So sorry, Pete, but you weren't the best. <laughs> I'm sure that joke's never been made before. <laughs> anyway. So 60th anniversary of the Beatles very first recording. And I, I, I thought that was super interesting. So, that's going to lead us after we take a really quick break into our main topic of Britpop. So stick around. We'll be right back in 30 seconds. So how do we describe this show? Like what's really going to grab people's attention and make them tune in? Nerdgasm for your eargasm? What? The space must flow to be in the know. Um, Don't be a willow. Grab your pillow. But that one doesn't even make sense. All right, stop. Snag a seat and listen. The nerds are back with a brand new edition. No. Uh, okay, then. The Blurred Nerds Podcast. France raves, reviews, recaps, and other bits of random fandom. Well, see, that's perfect. You should have just led with that one. Resistance is futile. Listen to the Blurred Nerds Podcast right meow. Fine. Make it so. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us during that short intermission. As Alan mentioned, today we are talking about Britpop, predominantly focusing on the scene from the 90s, but we will start out by talking about some of the influences and the antecedents, such as uh, the Beatles, Small Faces, the mod revival scene, likes of the jam. I'm sure Rob is very excited to talk a little bit about the Madchester and Baggy scenes. <laughs> and uh, and then we'll move into kind of the Big Four, the Battle of Britpop, other bands, and, and then finally the death of Britpop and the move into post-Britpop. So very excited to talk through all of this. So... I know, obviously, a big thing here, we've already mentioned the Beatles, those early mod scenes, I think, or the mod scene in general was heavily, heavily influential, particularly on Oasis. I think they really wore their influences on their sleeves. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the Madchester scene with bands like the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, mm. uh, the Lars, et cetera, et cetera. Any any standouts for the for those two scenes for either of you guys that you think were particularly influential or that you particularly want to talk about? Um, the effect of the Kinks on the bl on Blur, I think, is <clears throat> yeah as as evident as the uh, effects of the Jam on Oasis. That's kind of the yin and yang. Um, you know that the thing about that Madchester scene is that you just had all these like literally bands were popping up out of no out of nowhere. The one I think that sort of did cross over well into Britpop might be James. While they're not the most solid band, oh yeah, uh, those early records. Um, you know they're still making records, and they and the stuff in the nineties uh, is probably the best stuff they they did. Um, yeah, I think Sit Down really fits in with the rest of the Britpop mm -hmm. scene. Yeah, I think, you know, you get some of the, you, I think they're probably, them and the Charlottes are probably the two big ones that kind of still went around into Britpop. Maybe yeah. also Lightning Seeds. 
Yeah, although he didn't make a ton of records though. After after the no. soccer anthem, he kind of just the Divine Comedy I think stuck around a little bit, although they weren't specifically Manchester. Um, but you know, you had all these like one-off records. You had like the North Side and Candy Flip and like just all these just bonkers, crazy bands out of no. Like literally, everyone was making records, and I think that fed into a desire to sort of get rid of the band of the week and have album rock big bands with big egos that weren't fly by night. I think that sort of fed into the Britpop movement, why you had the big four. And I think it also sort of cultivated uh, this sense of like, let's take this seriously and not just make knockoff records were drug, that were drugged out when we're drugged out. I think that's kind of the, the thing. And the other big thing to take away too, is that um, Britpop kind of stripped away a lot of sort of the elements of dance music that you had in Manchester, with the exception of maybe New Order, right? Who dabbled a little bit in trying to do Britpop records, but that's mm-hmm. about it. Um, sort of for that influence. There definitely were bands that sort of lasted into that time period. And the ones that stand out are the ones I think that everyone kind of knows. Right, right. Um, for me, I, I really love the charlatans. Yeah. Stone roses too, but I think, and, and happy Mondays. I, I really dig them, but, uh, the charlatans are the standout for me. Now I, I need to add a little caveat to all this. A lot of this stuff was happening at the time that I was at university and my head was fully submerged in classical because that was my major. That was my studies. And, um, I just wasn't as aware of a lot of this stuff. The, uh, when we talk later about Blur and Oasis and stuff like that, I, you know, I, my knowledge of all this stuff really was what was happening on the radio or on MTV at the time. I wasn't really listening too much to radio. Um, my 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 listening at that time when it wasn't like a Shostakovich symphony that I was analyzing or something like that. It was uh, what my, you know, like two or three of my favorite bands were doing from the 80s or 70s that were doing new stuff in the 90s. So, you know, Kiss put out their uh, live unplugged album and I had to buy that. And yes, did the two Keys to Ascension album, the collection. So I got those. But otherwise, I wasn't really listening to a whole lot of like the active scene at that time. Um, interestingly from MTV, I did discover one of the post Britpop bands that I want to talk about later. But, um, so a lot of my stuff for this comes retroactively. Um, I picked up on Blur and Oasis, uh, not too long after that, but a lot of this other stuff I didn't really, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of at the time. It was only as I started listening to actually, I'll tell you what, it was Kula Shaker that really, that really started to get me like interested in what was happening over at this time. And the more I listened to them, the more I sort of branched out into other things. And that's really where I started to get the charlatans and the happy Mondays and these kind of bands. So um, yeah, that's they're They're sort of like my origin story, I guess. And I definitely want to talk about Kula Shaker after ah. we talk about the big four and the battle of Britpop. Right, right. So I think that's a good segue. The big four, of course, uh, everyone thinks of as Pulp, Suede, Blur, and Oasis. Yep. I would personally argue two of those are not really Britpop. Um, I think Pulp had been around since like 1978, and candidly, they mm-hmm. had one album that vaguely fits in the genre, but they shouldn't have really been considered to be Britpop, in my opinion. And right. then I think Suede 
if you look at their influences, they were far more influenced by Bowie and Roxy Music and the glam rock scene mm-hmm. than they were the mod scene and Manchester. So yeah. I'm not sure they really belong either. But Blur and Oasis, yeah, you know, I I was I think I was maybe seven when Wonderwall came out. Sorry, I'm going to make you guys feel old. Oh, um, We're used to it. And and that was really the first time I became aware of Oasis. And Blur didn't really hit my radar until their self-titled album with Song 2, which is still everywhere to this day. You go to any sports game and Song 2 is going to be played in the stadium at some point. Exactly. Um, so by that point, Blur, I think, had kind of moved on from Britpop and had kind of stripped yeah. it back and gone a bit more lo-fi. But you... I wasn't aware of things like Park Life and um, Park Life, Mod- Modern Life is Rubbish and, and those <laughs> earlier Blur albums at the time until I heard that self-titled album and started going, oh, these guys are kind of cool. All right, mm-hmm. let, me, let me take a listen back. Um, but I think when everyone thinks of Britpop, that's the big rivalry, Blur and Oasis. There was oh, yeah. that very famous Battle of Britpop where... In the UK, Country House and Roll With It were released as singles on the same day. Mm-hmm. And I, if I recall correctly, I think Country House was the one. No, Roll. No, Country House was number one. Country House was number. That's what I thought. Roll With It was number two. I'm going to say the wrong band won that battle. I think the <laughs> more interesting band won the battle. Maybe more think- interesting. Maybe so. I think if you look at the uh, the war, if you if you want to look at pure album and uh, single sales on future records, mm-hmm. I suspect Oasis probably won the war even if they lost the battle. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Which is a shame because Oasis are a, a brash, vulgar, dumb kind of rock band, whereas <laughs> Damon Albarn Albarn is actually a very intelligent Mm -hmm. and gifted songwriter who has you know i think in the long run he's certainly shown himself to be way more able than either of the gallagher brothers in terms of composition and actually writing music what's interesting though is um you know i was i was just kind of like i watched a documentary about this whole thing and and the point that it was made is that this really it wasn't just about two bands releasing singles on the same day this it i mean it is sort of like evolved into this whole like almost like a class warfare this was working class versus middle class this was north versus south mm-hmm. you know it was it was a difference in point of view and i think honestly uh country house is just i hate to say it but it's just more british yeah. than than yeah. the oasis song and i i'm 100 think that's why it won but um, I, I, I don't know. I just don't. It doesn't appeal to me as much. Like Park Life just doesn't appeal to me as much as anything that Oasis was doing at that time either. So, I mean, I like a lot of Blur stuff, but that that sort of like, you know, slice of English. And maybe it's just because I'm a dumb American. I don't know. But I don't think that's the case because I love all of Paul McCartney's slice of English countryside life, you know, all those kind of penny lane things and stuff like that but it it's interesting alan i think for me it depends on my mood again yeah. i i think oasis are a big brash dumb rock band and there's yeah. absolutely a time for that you know sometimes all i really want is to crank up my stereo 
um, blast morning glory with that wonderful opening riff because I'm just in that kind of obnoxious mood. But sometimes I actually want to listen to something that's a bit more refined, a bit more intelligent. And that's when I might turn to Blur and listen to something like The Universal. So what you're saying is that the true winner of this battle is the fans because we have both of these bands to turn to. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I think overall, if you had to ask me to pick a favorite of the two, I am a Londoner and I am upper middle class. And so I am going to pick Blur. Yeah. But I think Oasis absolutely have a time and a place. Mm -hmm. Rob, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. Uncharacteristically quiet. I would love to hear your opinions (laughs) on these two bands. So I saw the first time I saw Blur was at the New Music Seminar. Right before the first album came out, they played on a bill with Will and the Bushman and Slowdive. And they sounded kind of like they were coming out. It kind of sounded like they wanted to be a Manchester kind of thing. And then after the first record, it's like they switched it off and just went and did something else completely. And you could hear gradually from album to album a sense of musical uh, evolving, musical forms evolving. When you hear Oasis, to me, um, I tend to hear a lot of the same stuff just in different ways, spewed back in different ways. It doesn't mean it's not bad. It just means, you know, um, they're not really doing, they're not taking a lot of chances, right? And that's probably really smart. On hindsight, you know, Blur were allowed to take more chances. Blur's label let them take more chances and do more things than, than Oasis's label did. Um, but the results is, you know, who sold more albums and got more press, you know, but it's, it's an interesting, um, for me, when I hear Brit, uh, Britpop, I associate it with, you know, um, the backlash against Tony Blair and this idea of, you know, you don't have, I mean, I think, you know, Anthony mentioned it a little bit too, this idea of you don't have to go to college to be smart. Um, but it was also very much, I think, this fight for who owned the musical past uh, of England sort of in many ways, you know, Oasis were very much like, we're taking back rock and roll and we're going to bring, you know, scorching music. And Blur is very much, we're going to bring back the like, you know, the T-Rock, the genteel, like, you know, garden listening type of stuff, which I think is really an interesting dichotomy. And I'm also fascinated, you know, you have the subgenres of this, you know, if it bleeds into books and films and fashion. Way more stuff we can get into, and art. Um, And that aspect of it is fascinating, too. But I generally think that, uh, I mean, for me, I'm more of a Blur person than than an Oasis person. But I didn't see... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Tony Blair, because I Mm. think he was very much an integral part of the scene. You know, Labour were elected for the first time in about... 18 years in 1987, uh, 1997, sorry. <laughs> and, um, you know, he very much rode on the wave of Cool Britannia and he had Noel Gallagher come and visit Downing Street and Noel Gallagher famously claimed to have snorted cocaine in the 10 Downing Street <laughs> bathrooms. Um, so, you know, he very much rode on those coattails and sought to ingratiate himself and say, yes, I'm part of this movement. Mm-hmm in a way that I don't think any other prime minister had really tried to 
ingratiate themselves with the biggest musical thing mm -hmm. at the time. Very similarly to the way that Bill Clinton did it in America mm -hmm. um, when in his presidential bid, when he was very, very clearly going for the youth vote, going on MTV and, and jumping up on stage and playing sax and just doing things that made him appeal to the youth, the youths, you know, is the, it's kind of the same way that Tony Blair pitched his bid and and it worked in both cases yeah at least initially <laughs> absolutely and so, you know i didn't um i didn't get to see oasis probably till their last american tour and the thing that struck me about oasis is just what a surprisingly great live band they were for a band that was pretty much a train wreck <laughs> Right. Well, well, that's what makes them an entertaining life band. Exactly. I think. And that's what we were, what Anthony was saying. Sorry, what A-Dubs was yeah. saying uh, about the one that gets, or maybe you said it, it was about the one who gets the more press. And it's not just the music. It's that sort of incendiary Swagger. relationship between the two brothers that fed the media. I mean, but it also, I think, drove the, the band. It drove the music. And so I think that they had an edge that Blur might not have had. Blur had a lot of great stuff about him, but I think that the thing that Oasis had was that real tension, you know, that sort of anger. And that anger is intrinsic to the band members and to the music that they're playing. Yeah. I, it was both the thing that drove them forward and then the thing that ultimately it, split them up and have right. caused them to still be split up 13 years later no matter how much liam gallagher <laughs> begs on twitter to his brother to reunite and then calls him a potato when he ignores him right. so you know there's that so you know, i i, I, I want to say that my favorite album of either of these two bands is the recording from nebworth of oasis's yeah. performance at nebworth that is a just a great live album and it just encapsulates everything that was 96 it just grabs everything that they were doing up to that point it's almost a greatest hits album and mm -hmm. it just presents what that band was really really good at and it's it's also one of those times too that a band is captured live at the apex of yeah, where they are exactly which you just don't get and that was you know, all about timing, too. They were the hottest band on the planet at that particular time. And they actually walked the walk with that, with that, you know, with that. Yep. Yeah. And that was always the risk with them. You never knew whether they were going to show up with that swagger and play a yeah. balls to the wall set of fucking killer rock music. Yeah. Or whether Liam and Noel, one of them was going to punch the other one and the other one would refuse to show up, you know? And yep. that was always the risk at the time. So we've talked about Oasis. We've talked about Blur. I've already said I don't consider Pulp and Suede to really be Britpop, but I think the mainstream considers them. I think we've got to talk about them. Yeah. Um, personally, of the four, even though I would vehemently argue they're not Britpop, Suede are by far my favorite. Oh, um, by or, far. Sorry, we're, yeah. we're a predominantly US-based broadcast, so I should say the <laughs> London Suede. Um, oh, that's true. But, um, you know, I, I think Dogman Star is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. The whole thing sounds like it was probably recorded in, in an opium dam. But um, <laughs> it's just it's just got this vibe to it of decadence. And mm. oh, it just it 
it sends a shiver down my spine, particularly when I listen to all eight minutes of the Asphalt World, which mm. just, oh, it's so good. Um, Pulp I never really got into so much, but I'd love to hear what you guys think about these two bands. I think that the British press had um, Oasis and Blur, and they needed something else to create a scene, so they had something to write about. So they sort of looked for Britpop-adjacent bands, and they wanted, you know, bands that they went for. The one thing about Britpop is the, the whole idea of, like, pin-up rock starism is kind of a thing, right? So um, yeah. even in the female bands like Sleeper and Elastica, you know, it's, it's very much a thing. So I think a lot of that is more of the British tabloids trying to invent that and also them trying to very much labels very much trying to make this all happen in America as a new wave, a new invasion. So I think they lumped a lot of bands together that don't really fit together and just sort of said, here, go. Right. Um, And that's kind of how I think we got that far. And I think to your point, Rob, you know, you look at all four of these bands and there's at least one big personality in each one of them, mm-hmm. whether it's Jarvis Cocker, whether it's Brett Anderson, Damon Albarn or the Gallagher brothers. Mm-hmm. Every one of them has their figurehead. Yeah. When when you look at the other less notable Britpop bands, which we'll talk about in detail soon, you know, I couldn't tell you who any of the members of Supergrass are. <laughs> right. That is so I mean, true. I could, I could tell you who the lead, the the leader of Elastica was, but that's really only because she dated both Brett Anderson and Damon Albarn, and all her business was everywhere because of it. But <laughs> you know, for the most part, I can tell you who any of these guys are in the other bands. Certainly not in Ocean Color Scene. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Alan, any thoughts on Pulp and Suede for you? Oh. If there nice. was a if there was a second Britpop battle of the bands, Suede would win. And, and I like Pulp. There's there's a lot of songs of, of, by Pulp that I really dig, but but there's just something about Suede. You know, I mean, they had that glam rock thing, and then there exactly. was the ambiguous sexuality of Brett Anderson, the tension yeah. between um, him and um, Bernard Butler that eventually caused Bernard to leave the band. I, they're just such an interesting band with such an interesting sound. Right on. Mm-hmm. Right on. And let's mention it again. They have a new song out and it's fantastic. Yes. Yes, it is. All right. We touched on some of those other bands. Any favorites from the scene that aren't part of the big four? I, Alan, you've already mentioned Cooler Shaker, who I always liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, baby. Echo you know, Belly. Think, okay. I, I really, really like yep. Echo Belly. Um, I also really like, um, I might get their name wrong, Kaniki. Oh, Kaniki or, yeah. I don't, I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, so either Kaniki or Kaniki, I don't know. But I, I really love them. They are, they're very similar to Echo Belly, but with more of a bite. You know, they've got more edge to them. They are almost sort of like a, you know, like they they draw their inspiration from the Runaways, like we were talking about last week with Stephanie. Um, and I just think that I, both bands are fantastic. They're great songs, really, really catchy tunes. Um, but I might go to Kaniki just a slightly more, just because of their a uh, little bit more like bite to their sound and a little more aggression in their songs. But I dig them both. Love them. 
I quite liked Corner Shop. They were quite fun. I don't know they, them. They were particularly famous for they, they were an Anglo-Indian band. Um their big hit was a brimful of Asher, hmm. which um I mean it fits right in with the Britpop scene, but they were kind of from I think they were from Bradford, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wolverhampton, actually. They were from Wolverhampton, but they um uh, Fatboy Slim remixed uh, Brimful of Asher. It went to the top of the charts in in England, and it was it was great. I have very fond memories of that. And then I think the other one I really dug from that were less well known was Embrace. Embrace were pretty fun. Wow. Um, one that I've listened to. So I, I sort of did a little digging this week just to kind of get a little bit more into the wider scene. So I've discovered, well, I, I, I've known the name, the Boo Radleys, but I'd never heard them until this week. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're interesting. I kind of like them. Um, the Long Pigs. Never heard of that before, but I, I came across a song or two, and that's pretty good. I, I dig them. Um, yeah. So like I said, I was at college at the time at university, and I was doing my classical music stuff, and I was just completely unaware of any <laughs> of this stuff at the time. So all of it is retro for me. Anyway, it was something Doctor Who adjacent that introduced me to Kula Shaker, and that's where I discovered them and dug into them, and that's where I kind of like got some yeah. of the other ones around them. Yeah, I was, I was, I loved that first Kula Shaker record, and I still love it a lot, especially because it was balls because it was a double album. And um, I, at the time, they put out a record. They made they had a record called the Three Hundred Three, and I lived in an apartment Three Hundred Three, so I was. <laughs> That was actually pretty obnoxiously great. Um, I love, I mean, you're dead right about Echo Valley. Um, my fondest and only memory of Ocean Color Scene is they played a show here uh, in St. Louis with the House of Love and Catherine Wheel on election night in 92 when Clinton oh, wow. got elected. Yeah. The first hmm. time Clinton got elected. Yeah. And um, there was just absolute euphoric. And I, I can't remember any of their songs live, whereas I could remember the other two bands, right? Um, Love the Boo Radleys. I remember because uh, I was doing radio at the time and the singles coming out were Fast and Furious. We were getting Dodgy and Dubstar at like Candyland. And I love this. I love this band from Glasgow. They put out one record that nobody cares about called The Wendy's. Um, they have a record called Pulling My Fingers Off and another one called um, the, the Sun's Gonna Shine For Me Soon. Uh, they were kind of right squarely in the middle of the 89 summer of love Manchester stuff and the nineties just squarely in the middle. Um, Saint Etienne for some reason is put into the Britpop lump. Yeah. And I really, really like them. Although I don't necessarily think that like pulp, they sort of fit in. Um, there was an artist that they bless their heart. They really tried to make work. There was a, a band called Gene that I just remember them really, really, really trying to push and make it over, and it just never worked. Stop trying to make Gene a thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just never, ever, ever worked. Um, I love. I know we talked about Echo Belly, so I'll, I'll leave that there. But I, I was a big fan of Sleeper, and mm-hmm. um, also a big fan of Elastica. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I always felt like Supergrass probably should have done better than they did. Yeah, I mean, they I, did. I, I agree with you on that. And the thing about Supergrass is that they're all of their shows on this tour in the last month have sold out. 
and they're they're set on on uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Made me go back and listen to the rest of the records. Uh, they were phenomenal on Kimmel. Oh, I missed that. It was yeah. yeah. And oh, I, I I have to see that. It was it was really really good. Hmm. And I always forget them. And then every time I hear pumping on the stereo, I'm like, what's what band is this again? Oh yeah, it's them. You know, which is terrible. But you know, they're they're sort of like their timing was just all wrong because yeah. they came along near the end of it. And I mean, if they would have broke two years earlier. I remember All Right came out in, I want to say, 95. So yeah. roughly adjacent with Oasis, mm-hmm. and they were just yeah. completely overshadowed. But yeah. All Right, another- to me, was like a real summer anthem. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. And then when Pumping on Your Stereo came out, they that had a real kind of swagger that I almost associate with the Rolling Stones Yeah, in terms of like the vibe and the way they came out with it and, you know, the kind of slightly rockier edge and when you think of so much of the scene drawing its inspiration from the beatles to have something that feels a lot more inspired by the stones was an interesting move yeah yeah um one of the things that we have on our list of potential show topics for sometime down the road is uh bad band names or funny band names so this week i came across a group called Carter, the unstoppable sex oh machine. My yes. <laughs> oh my God. That is so the first best. Of all, first of all, they were amazing. Right. I, oh, I, the songs that I've heard, I really like, have you heard the one that samples red dwarf and Bowie yet? No. So they have a song called surfer USM. Okay. <laughs> that samples Bowie and, and dwarf and red. Dwarf. Nice. All yeah. right. I'll look for it. I friggin'. I mean, yeah, I, and I was lucky that when they played St. Louis, um, 15 people came. So a friend of mine who's a British radio DJ and I basically got to hang out with them for like a day and a half. It was amazing. Right. I, um, I think I have a complete Carter. I'm a nearly complete Carter, the unstoppable sex machine discography. Um, they were just too funny and too tongue in cheek for the average person to get. Right. right. They were almost a novelty band that just kept on winning. Right. Um, and the voice, there's not a voice anywhere in the world that sounds like it. And the thing is, they're not necessarily Britpop, but they're they're very much rooted in glam. And they're very much rooted in, you know, the Rolling Stones, but they're also kind of not. There, there are a lot of different things, depending on what record you get, right? Um, I'm going to have to check them out. Well, they're, I've never they're, heard of these they're guys. Big, their big, big apex was 90, 1992 when they put out the, an album called 1992. And that was kind of it for them because they got signed to America. Um, the only living boy in New Cross did really well. And after that, they couldn't really push it through. Um, but they were great. Uh, I also like a band from Wales called Catatonia. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of them as being a bit more post-Britpop than yeah, part I, of the scene. They're kind of, they're kind of put in it. But the big thing, you know, the hard part for, for kids in America is that when we think of Britpop, we don't stop at the same place where the Brits do. We just assume that everything that came out in that mid nineties pile is all Brit pop. Cause there was just so much of it. And I, mean, I, I couldn't turn around in, in radio in 1996. I could not turn around and find a band that wasn't British unless it was the Pixies, REM or the replacements. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think this is a good point for us to kind of segue into post Brit pop. So 
I think back home, generally, it's pretty well accepted that Britpop died when Oasis released Be Here Now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the hype had got so, so intense that they could have put out the best album ever and it wouldn't have lived up to the hype. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, there was no way that whatever they did... And Be Here Now, I still think is a... a I wouldn't say it's a great album, but it's a good album. But I think that's when a lot of the British music press kind of lost interest in the scene. And that's when you started to see some of these other bands that I think of as really being post-Britpop. Think bands like Travis, Stereophonics, um, Catatonia to some extent, although they probably have more of the actual vibe of Britpop than some of the others. And eventually Coldplay and Snow Patrol. And yeah, yeah. You know, for me, I think of post-Britpop as being incredibly depressing as a genre. Um, You know, I I think back to those first Coldplay albums and good God, no, thank you. Likewise, (laughs) Travis, why does it always rain on me? Well, probably because you're shit. So Um, this is the part where I watch uh, Alan and I have a laugh. I hate to see what happens to Anthony when I mention Keen. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh! Yeah. I, I know. I love Keen. I, Anyone I, who I, didn't see the face I pulled, it was just the face of sheer disgust. I'm sorry. <laughs> I saw Keen here uh, a few years ago, and they were fantastic. I like them. Sorry. I mean, you're quite entitled to Alan. They're they're just not for me. The the one I band I really did enjoy from the post Britpop scene were Feeder. Mm. Yeah, they were a lot of fun. When I worked at Electra, they tried really hard to make that debut album go in the states. We tried everything, and it just didn't catch on over here. And, I mean, they, and they, I saw them live, and they were fantastic live. <laughs> they didn't even catch on in the UK until like their third album. So, mm. yeah. you know, when they released Echo Park with um, with Buck Rogers, which has just such bizarre lyrics. Yeah, that's. That's really what broke them in the UK. Yeah. The other band, too, I think of that no one else cares about is Ash. Mm, yeah. 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 Not 1977 record. It's just phenomenal. Um, I think my favorite, and this is one of my MTV discoveries while I was at university. I would never, th- this would never have got played on the radio or anything, but MTV played the video one afternoon when I was studying and it just grabbed my attention. And it's the Sundays. Their, yes. fir- their first album came out in 1999. So that's like really after, you know, the Britpop scene has really kind of moved on. But you can still hear some of that influence in their sound. Um, I, I particularly think that they kind of um, harken back a little bit to Echo Belly, um, which may be why I like Echo Belly so much. Um, but I think that their some of their song arrangements are a little bit more interesting and certainly their lyrics and their melodies are a bit more complex. There's a, there's a lot more to grab hold of mm-hmm. there. That first album is one of my favorite albums ever recorded. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I love it so much. So I, I definitely see them as one of those, you know, writing that sort of like the wave as after it crests and it's about to hit the shore there they are. That first album did did pretty well. Their second and third one did okay. And honestly, they weren't as good as their first album. That first album was phenomenal. 
Yeah, and a lot. It's another case of a really great band having people interfere if they just would have been allowed to progress organically. Because mm. um, the only other, th- I mean, that the, fir- the first record is astounding and it's great. Last two albums are different, except for the cover of Wild Horses. That's the only other time besides the first album they really got a lot of radio play. Well, on the third album, there they had a song called an original called "Summertime," which did get some play yeah. here in America, but nothing like Wild Horses did. Yeah, but it should have. And that's and that's another interesting play on regionalism because here mm. that record died, right? Yeah, totally. Those two records sort of died. Because the, the the curse that they had with their with the with that third record is it came out I think the same week or the same month as, as one of the Mazzy Star records and that was just yeah of death. yeah 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 of course I think if you look at the post Britpop scene sorry I'm moving on a little bit no, here no, but I think the most successful band to come out of it have undoubtedly been Coldplay. Yeah, totally. You know, they're yeah. huge and probably followed by Snow Patrol. I think Chasing Cars was is probably. I think I read recently that it's the most played song on British radio of the 21st century. Wow. Which That's is interesting. Insane. Yeah, it is. And I like... I like always, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I've, I've just always thought that these bands are just relentlessly depressing and not really for me. <laughs> Cold, Coldplay have moved on from that a bit and have done some more interesting mm-hmm. stuff. But their, their mm-hmm. early stuff for me is, is in line with the rest. It's just, no, yeah. I, I can't do it. I, there are things by both bands that I really like. And in fact, I saw Snow Patrol. Um, they were one of the, uh, forgive me for saying this, they were one of the opening bands for Ed Sheeran. I went to see Sheeran. And 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 really, my, my main attraction for seeing Sheeran was, you know, going with some friends who love him, was seeing Snow Patrol. And I really enjoyed them. But they're, you know, I think both bands have songs yeah. that, I, that I really dig. I mean, Coldplay particularly, I think, takes a lot of, flag yeah. but they have yeah. done some stuff that i really like I, for me coldplay have really got better with as time has gone by and they've diverged more from that scene and they've done more and more upbeat stuff um yeah snow patrol for me 2006 when chasing cars came out i was dating someone who was obsessed with them mm. and <laughs> that did not end well that relationship and that kind of candidly colored snow patrol for me. And <laughs> yeah, the, the other interesting thing in here too, is that in that time when Brick pop is breaking the first two Radiohead albums dropped. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's I was, true. I was, at, well, they were very, they were totally different band as I was at right. uh, WBCR in Brooklyn at the time. And they capital sent a courier over a copy of creep to play on the radio with no cursing on it. They were very excited because they had no cursing on it, but they gave us the shirts that said I'm so effing special on them, right? Mm, cool. Which, you know, for three months, I'm like, I don't care about the band. I just want to wear the fucking shirt, right? <laughs> um, but those two records were kind of very heavily influenced by everything else going on. Um, I think the Benz is probably the better of the, of, of the two than Pablo Honey. But it, for me, I can kind of hear the last sort of whispers of, of Britpop with those two records. Not that they're responsible or anything but it's just kind of the last spirit of it you you definitely you definitely hear a bit of Britpop in those and Mm -hmm. i remember at the time they were considered to be part of the scene yeah and then okay computer came out and that was just so wild and out there and people like oh wait 
maybe we've misjudged these guys. <laughs> and, you know, now I'm hearing uh, people talking about OK Computer as a prog rock album. I have, yes. I've heard it included heard in it those too. lists. And, I mean, I, I like it. There's stuff on it that I really dig, but I would never think of it as prog. Yeah. I think it hits the uh, – we're going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it hits yeah. the – the spirit of prog in the I, innovation but i think if you think about prog as like a a certain sound right like it it doesn't fit that sound but it fits the concept of prog that's that's yeah. the perfect way to describe it it sums up the spirit of prog but it does not it's not a prog style what yeah, you would yeah. think of classically as a prog style. It's not like Yes or not Genesis <laughs> or Pink Floyd, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it, it fucks with time signatures and yeah. stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, the best thing sort of about the post-Britpop world for me is what later came after, which is sort of the, the trip-hop stuff, where you had Massive Attack and Tricky and even David Bowie kind of making these records that sort of had mm -hmm. a very... And I think that was a very parallel scene. Yeah, but it was also a reaction to it too. It was very much um, to some extent. I mean, it start that that whole scene started in in the Bristol area in the late eighties, so before yeah. Britpop really became a thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do feel that they're parallel rather than reactionary. Yeah, because I remember you know the Portishead record really broke near the end of near the end. Um, Unfinished Symphony by Minutes by uh, Massive Attack kind of came out in the middle, but the mezzanine was sort of a post brick pop record too. Um, and it was, it's kind of interesting that they both were sort of the yin and yang of each other. Although the trip hop movement fizzled out much quicker, I think than, than brick pop and didn't have the bands with sort of the staying power. Um, Although it's interesting because we've seen a little bit of a trip and we're going off topic here. But yeah. We've seen a little bit of a trip hop revival in recent years. You know, Lana Del Rey has played in that space a little bit. Yeah. Um, Marina and the Diamonds has done a couple of songs uh, that you could consider to be trip hop, Teen Idol being the prime example. Yeah. So you're kind of seeing elements of that coming back, particularly with some of these um you know, female singer-songwriters who are taking those elements and doing new things with them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, I think it's parallel, and it's interesting how the revival was almost parallel with Britpop as well. Good point. All right. We are at the hour mark, so I think it's time that we wrap this discussion up. Gentlemen, this has been a pleasure talking about this subject with you. It's it's kind of a strange one because it really is one of the first kind of movements that I consciously remember happening. Um, it was at that right. point in listening to music where I was starting to differentiate myself from my parents' records. And, um, you know, this I have very, very clear memories of kind of late childhood before I became a teenager with this scene. So this was a wonderful, wonderful topic. Alan, I know I won't be here next time round, but what are you guys talking about next time? Well, luck. I know, yeah, so we'll be back in a week. And unfortunately, Anthony will not be with us. He'll be back in the land of his birth. I will. But we, it's very sad. We'll miss you uh, for the next two weeks. But we have Stephanie Seymour sitting in with us for the next two weeks, which I'm very excited about. And next week's she, topic is, oh, sorry. She rules. She does rule. We established mm -hmm. that firmly last week. <laughs> um, so our topic next week is 1982 and uh, oh. the, the album scene from that incredible year that we're 
40, 40th anniversary for a lot of albums that are like huge. So we'll be talking about that next week with Stephanie Seymour. A little jealous about that, but you know, we already yeah. talked about one of my favorites on its own episode, so I can't complain too much. We can always come back to it. I mean, there's a lot of albums that came out that year. There's no way we can get them all in yeah. one show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Anthony, where can people find you on the internet? Well, if this is your first time listening, this will be your first time hearing this. But if you're a repeated listener, the spiel is exactly the same. You can find me on the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. At the time of recording this, we are currently in John Pertwee's final season, so season 11 from 1974. Um, so you can find us in all of the usual places, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you can also check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D. Rob, give us the litany of options. <laughs> uh, you can hear me on uh, the Need Coffee Weekend Justice podcasts and on KDHX on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m., central or one hour later eastern and um not whatever weird time it is they do on the west coast um all the all the shows on the station are streamed online at kdhx.org for two weeks so if you have something better to do like listen to alan do his star trek podcast you can listen to my show later <laughs> wow speaking of a star trek podcast yes i have a star trek podcast called earth station trek and you can find it at all of those places that Anthony mentioned his podcast can be found at. And I also have a little publishing company that can be found at CosmicPress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C Press.com, or on Facebook or Twitter. All right, so we're out of here. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you give us feedback, we will read it out on the air. On the air. That's old radio terminology. Um, but... Take, have a great week. Take care of each other. Be good. And we'll see you round the bend. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the T Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.